story of a man who's out in a field that doesn't even belong to him, and he's out there, and eventually he finds this treasure. He opens up this chest, at least in my imagination, and he, he instantly sees that what's inside is worth more than he's ever seen, touched, imagined, owned ever in his entire life. It's like when Bilbo Baggins walks into the chamber and sees the dragon sleeping on top of this incredibly inordinate amount of gold and jewels. Anyone read The Hobbit before? It's like that where, where Frodo, in, Bilbo, sorry, instantly knows there's no way I'll ever be able to bring my share of this gold back home. It's that much. It's that big. And so this man makes this incredible, important, you know, sort of cost-benefit analysis right on the spot. And he says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to sell everything that I have. I'm going to put up a big for sale sign on my house. I'm going to sell all my possessions, everything. My goal from now on is to buy this field so that I can have the treasure that's inside of it. It's this amazing reality where Jesus says, that is exactly what it's like to hear, hear me say, come and follow me and walk in my kingdom. That's exactly what it's like. I think sometimes we hear Jesus call us, or maybe we've heard other people talk about following Jesus, like it's going to an IMAX movie. You know, just show up. It'll be air-conditioned. The screen will be big. It'll be highly entertaining. All you need to do is show up each week. Or maybe we've heard that the, the call to follow Jesus is like walking down an aisle one time. It's incredibly awkward, socially painful. Maybe all you had to do was raise a hand once while everybody else's eyes were closed. But all you really need to do is come down and maybe they have a card for you. This is just my own personal story. They have a card for you and all you have to do is check a box. One and done. It's like the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. All you got to do is stick it in your arm. You walk away and suddenly, that's it. Following Jesus is like that. Or maybe following Jesus for you and what you've heard is a never-ending marathon of just doing better, working harder, becoming stronger. Day after day, rigorous discipline where not that many people can do it. I was at a party recently where this guy, it was outside at the beach, so I don't know. Uh, you were there. But there was this guy who, after y'all left and people talked to us, this guy came up and he was just bragging about how he runs all of these marathons and anybody can do it. All you have to do is be a good person like me. And maybe that's how you heard the call to come and follow Jesus. What I really need to do is be like one of those people who over time is able to add more and more miles, more and more endurance and be better. Or maybe you've heard following Jesus is a call to missional martyrdom. That what's required of you is to be a person who lays down your life, your kids, your possessions, everything at the altar of other people being loved and cared for. But Jesus says that following him is like finding an extravagant treasure. Jesus says, if you're thirsty, follow me and you'll never thirst again. He says, if you're hungry, follow me and be satisfied for the entirety of your life. Jesus says, when you hear me calling you, It's like an invitation to the wedding of the century where there's a huge banquet, a huge feast, a huge catering put on just 
for you. It's an abundant life. Jesus also says, you give everything that you have for it. The path is the way of the cross, he says over and over again in all of the Gospels. Do you want to follow me? Give up everything. Pick up your cross. Walk the same life that I am walking. The cost of following Jesus is really high. You leave it all behind. You sell your accolades, your achievements, your trophies, all of the things that you long for. You leave that behind because you lose yourself in the following of Jesus. You instantly see that he alone is worthy of more than anything else you could ever accumulate in your entire life. And it is worth selling the farm, so to speak, to have it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote a great book called The Cost of Discipleship. Some people are scared of it because it's a painful kind of title. It's like, oh, that's going to be, he's just going to talk about me, you know, being bad or like these big purchases that I must pay. It sounds like a, a bill statement, that book. But in it, what he says is this. He says, when Christ calls a person, he bids him to come and die. And then he says, this is costly because it calls us to follow. But it's also grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. He also goes on repeatedly in this book to say this one phrase that is so important. He says, what is discipleship? He says, discipleship is joy. Discipleship is joy. As a church, the reason we're doing this study is because we will not settle. I won't settle. The leaders won't. The apostolic team won't settle. Your missional community leaders will not settle for us to do anything less than calling each of us to the extravagant joy that can only be found in giving up your life and finding it. As Paul says, the only way is to consider living nothing but dying everything. As a church, we're not going to settle for just, hey, let's all just show up like it's an IMAX movie. Or let's all just meticulously get into some sort of missional rhythms and rites so that we feel pain uh, for the sake of other people. No, and this is something you can call us out on. If we are calling you to anything less than abundant life and all of your life given away, then we are not doing the calling that we've been given as your leaders. Learning to follow Jesus is learning to live in the collision of the cross and the resurrection. This incredible collision of the cross, the most terrible, horrific, painful, costly moment, and the resurrection, the most beautiful, vibrant, life-giving, transformative thing that's ever happened in human history. What it means to follow Jesus is to live in that collision. And so the next nine weeks, eight weeks, uh, we always go back and forth. It's nine weeks in the book, so it's set. It's in paper. Uh, is all about life and calling. We believe that Jesus has called us together to live in his presence, to live with one another, and to live with our neighbors immersed in God's mission to make all things new through the things that we do with our hands, to the things that we say, to the way that we live. And I believe that through that, through calling us together, 
we're going to attain some of our greatest longings we've ever wanted, an abundant life in Jesus, while we simultaneously lose our lives in following him. And just one last thing, why would we do that? Aren't there easier ways to go about this? It's because, I'll just be super honest, there is a deep, satisfying joy in doing and living and being who you were meant to be. And for us uh, as a church, we cannot rob each other of that incredible reality, that incredibly satisfying reality where we live out the life that we long for. So let's pray that we actually do that. And then we'll start this week's sermon. So that was just an extra one. Jesus, we do. We're, we're so needy to have a picture of you. Uh, we're so needy to to understand and to know the power of a life following you and the joy and the satisfaction and everything we just talked about. We're needy uh, to understand, to comprehend the heights and the depths of your love. And so, God, I ask for us as a church that we would be marked and formed and shaped by your Spirit moving in our lives, moving in our conversations, moving in our times with you, moving in the way that we talk and as a missional community as we experience your life. I pray that we would not be just learners and intellectual elite people who study a bunch, but don't have anything that resonates with our souls. I pray that we would be a people that have a, our souls wrecked and encouraged and nourished in these weeks. Thank you, Jesus, for doing so much. Amen. Amen. Today, we're going to start where every follower of Jesus starts. Conversion. Conversion is a word that's super out of style, but I have come to really like it. Uh, because as a kid, we lived in this other country. I've talked about it way too much, I know. But I lived in this other country that had a whole different type of power which is a bizarre thing. You know, the plugs are different, but also the amount of power that's coming through it is different. And so what we had to buy was this huge converter. It was so heavy. It looked like something that you would put in the middle of, you know, the DeLorean to get it to go back into the future. It was heavy. We kept hitting our feet on it because we always plugged it in the wall all the time so that we could play our American Nintendo 64 and shoot each other on GoldenEye. Really appealing, beautiful childhood that I had. But that's what we did. What's amazing about that little converter thing is that it takes one strain and one power source and it transforms it instantly into a different power source. That's conversion, right? Yeah, there's also the, you know, financial conversion if you're ever making measuring cups to ounces. We've all done that before. We've Googled it. Google's making a killing somehow giving us all conversion therapy. I don't know. Uh, but conversion is just like that through the whole of Scripture. It's about going through life in one complete direction, powered and developing some sort of strength for life that then suddenly in an encounter with Jesus is shifted and switched over completely. And so in this story, we're going to look at the, the life of Levi. It's in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. And we're going to see these three conversions that I think get initiated in the life of a person. 
uh, a conversion to Jesus instead of anything else, instead of any other hope, and then a conversion to his mission, his purpose, his kingdom advancing the world instead of our own, and then a conversion to his people, his community, instead of isolation or the other types of community that we settle for. And so Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32 says this. It says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus answered them and he said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That is God's word. I got too excited in the beginning. Uh, it starts with saying, after this. So what is the before this? Jesus has initiated this amazing movement that he calls the kingdom of God, of the rule and the reign and the desires and the passion of God coming to rest and be nestled in earth. That what God desires is now taking place in and through Jesus and the people around him. It looks like a guy who is a leper who's on the outsides of town, like someone in COVID quarantine, but for the rest of their life, just in a cave. And it looks like Jesus going out to them and making them clean and including them in his life. It looks like Jesus walking along the shores, finding fishermen, just subsistent workers and saying, leave all of that and follow me and taste the kingdom. Jesus goes to people who are just sick with mild issues, transforming them uh, from a sick person for a day into a healthy servant for the rest of their lives. Looks like Jesus uh, forgiving people of all the guilt and the shame that cripples them, but it also looks like him telling people who are crippled for life to stand up and walk. That's what's been going on. Jesus is going to all of the weak and the vulnerable those who are far from him, he's forgiving, he's healing, it's powerful, it's awesome. And then Jesus goes back to the lake where he had just, you know, talked to these fishermen and they're following him now. And he returns to it with this huge crowd of people who are now addicted to his teaching, to his love. They're looking to observe these moments of heaven on earth because it seems to follow Jesus wherever he goes. But he now is not going to more, you know, weak and wounded people. Right now, in this moment, he comes to Levi. And this is perhaps the most astonishing person that Jesus comes to at all. And it reveals just how far Jesus actually cares, how far his grace and his love extends. Because Levi is not on a mat. He's not poor. He's not vulnerable. He's not sick. He's not wounded. There's none of that. He is just a man in a booth sitting on the shores waiting for the fishermen to come in so that he can claim some of what they've just worked all day for, for the sake of an empire that has conquered those same people. Like that's Levi's life. He did this sort of cost-benefit analysis himself. And he saw the tides of history and how they were shifting and and moving. And he said, you know what? The best thing for me would be to sign up with the conquerors of my people. 
the best thing for me to do to have wealth, significance, happiness, is if I somehow began to rob my very own people. It wasn't a bad decision, really, when you think about it just in terms of how we make decisions of what's best for me, right? He got a bigger house, the kind of house that can host huge parties and he can have significant people over. He traded in a life of wondering if he was ever going to be oppressed to somehow being part of the oppressors. That's pretty, you know, now he's not afraid. He's pretty secure. Levi did what, you know, many of us observe in society and what often like we do ourselves. He aligned his whole life, his skills, his work into a system of oppression into the outpost of the kingdoms of this earth. He was good at counting, good at collecting, good at looking people in the face and demanding a portion of their lives. And then there, nestled on the shore, waiting to do what he does every day, Jesus comes and he tells him, come and follow me. Levi's litter history the dark side of history. Uh, They captained Atlantic slave trade ships. They sold their fellow citizens or tribal people into slavery. They raided Jewish ghettos after they were completely wiped out in Berlin. They sold drugs to single moms in their own neighborhood. They stole money from churches and then used their power to remain in power to steal more money. Levi used the logic of how can I maximize my earnings, my power, my security, my status? Because that's what he wanted in life. How did he arrive in the tax booth? The same way you've ended up pursuing the kingdoms of the world. A dozen tiny little decisions motivated by a material short-term gain justified by a long-term rationale. Levi hurt others in this crazy cocktail of betrayal and abuse, of theft, of complete disregard. He joined up all of these people. The, the pushback for him was he was banished from houses of worship. He was shunned at family reunions. He was blocked, canceled, all sorts of passive-aggressive behavior that people could do without getting pushed back too hard. He's simply just a man who put his hope in Caesar. He put his hope in a life of comfort, of privilege, and he ended up being a community of one. And I think the question that comes up in this moment that we often just pass over because we don't know or we don't think of tax collectors as that big of a deal, because for us, tax collectors are just like three letters that we get like correspondence with once a year, right? That's what I think of the tax collector. And they're nameless, faceless number people. Never actually talked to anyone at the IRS, thankfully. They're going to audit me now. But this was a real person. We also moved past it, but there, was, there would have been, the first readers of this would have been shocked and they would have wondered, is there really an inclusion into God's life for a person like this? It's one thing for Jesus to include the poor and the sick and the disenfranchised. It's one thing for God to include those who've been abused, who are sick, who are hurting. But is there really inclusion for those who hurt others? God not only welcomes Levi, Jesus pursues him. 
Levi isn't one of the people that sees Jesus and runs up to him. No, he wasn't that. He was a person who was sitting there and Jesus interrupted his life. And that's not a one-off situation for Jesus. He does it over and over again. He does it with Josephus, who's this rich, elite person. He does it with Nicodemus, who's part of the ruling class. He does it with Zacchaeus and many, many other tax collectors. Jesus' teaching is regularly geared graciously towards those people. This teaching of the, the person with the lost sheep or the lost coin or the lost sons, those teachings are not to the disenfranchised people who've been abused, but to those who've done the most abusing. He goes to debates and kindly pursues those people. He pursues definitely the poor and the powerless, but also the beggar on the street and also the millionaire in this big mansion. And the bottom line is from all of this is that Jesus pursues you and he pursues all of you and he cares about all of you. And Levi in this moment has this clarity In repentance, in this moment, he gets up and he leaves everything. He leaves all that he's had, you know, he leaves his whole rule. He leaves his whole alignment with the oppressors. And now is suddenly walking around with a guy who's talking about building a new kingdom. In an instant with Jesus, he betrays all of his past calculations. He leaves it all behind and he walks in the way of transformation with Jesus. He converts to Jesus. Jesus says, follow me, and Levi says, yes. Levi drops everything else that he hopes for, and he follows him. What does it mean? The disciples later say to Jesus, and Matthew being one of them, Levi being one of them, where he says, where else would we go, Jesus? Where else could we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. For every follower of Jesus, they look to him, they believe in him. And they believe that he is worthy. The fact is, is that Jesus is the main thing happening in your life. It's not plagues. It's not politics. It's Jesus. The question that hangs over everyone's existence is, what are you going to do with him and his kingdom? What are you going to do with his pursuit, his appeals, to come and follow me. What will you do with that? But Levi's journey doesn't end there, and neither does ours. He also converts to the mission of Jesus. And what Jesus does with Levi, he does with all of us. He doesn't just justify Levi's actions. He doesn't just give him grace. He doesn't just give him forgiveness and leave them all nestled up in a bow. No, he takes him, And he puts him in the very center of this whole mission that he has to see the world made new. He welcomes all of these people into his life. And then he brings them into the center of his purpose. Into the core cause of making the world new. Levi gets a new king, a new kingdom. You can see that pretty quickly. Pretty clearly, he goes from, you know, this guy, Caesar, who's this nameless, faceless person really far away, into giving his life wholly to Jesus, who's this poor man walking around a wasteland kind of place. But he says, that's the kingdom that I'm going to pursue. The kingdom is growing. It's like a loaf of bread in the oven that's rising as it cooks. 
The kingdom's like a tree that's growing with its branches. It's like an invisible force that's engulfing the world. That's what Levi gives his life to now. How do I know that? Levi gets a new name. Uh, His name becomes Matthew. Yay, Matthew Hutton, right? I don't know. I'm sure you knew this, Evie. But Matthew, that name simply means the gift of Yahweh. The gift of Yahweh. The gift of God. And that's the trajectory of everybody who comes into the kingdom of Jesus. Everyone who says, I want to follow them, they're transformed into the gift of Yahweh. And this is what's interesting. It's not the gift to Yahweh. I mean, that would be nice if it's like, hey, Matthew, he becomes God's gift. Like he's, a, he's like sort of, you know, hovers up to God and it's like, here's your present, God. But that's not what it means. It means God's gift to the world. And that's what everybody's trajectory is who begins to follow Jesus because he's interrupted their lives, becoming a gift to the world. Matthew becomes a writer of the history of Jesus' life. Uh, For those especially are part of the Jewish community scattered all over the world, which is pretty remarkable because he now suddenly gives his whole life to helping people that he betrayed understand the truth and the reality of the kingdom of heaven, which is what he talks about over and over again. He writes this stuff to the people of Europe, to people of Africa, to the people of India, He became a messenger of good news to the very people he betrayed. He also becomes a host to many, many parties. A lot of the scenes that you see of Jesus through his life are probably happening at his house. Gift of Yahweh to the world. He goes from village to village with others and he sees captives set free. He sees people healed. He sees people respond to the goodness of Jesus. After we've betrayed all those around us with our selfishness and our attempts to grab power and prestige and purpose, we're suddenly transformed into a gift to the very people who've experienced the most of our sin, our neighbors, our families, our loved ones. Matthew proclaims the gospel and he leverages his whole life to advancing the mission of Jesus. And it starts on that day, but it grows deeper and deeper as he understands more and more who Jesus is. And that's what hangs over the life of every Christian. Not just like, what am I doing with Jesus? But this bigger thing hangs over as well that says, what am I doing with his kingdom? What am I doing with with everything that he's given me? Levi doesn't surrender his personality, his gifts, his abilities, and says none of that matters anymore. What Matthew does is he begins to leverage all of it as a person, as a Jewish man, to say, I can communicate this good news to everyone who's like me. He welcomes people into his home. He does all of the the stuff with what God has already given him. And so the question for you, the question for us as a church is, where are we in converting and seeing our own conversion going from the pursuit of the kingdoms of this world to pursuing the kingdom of Jesus? Because just like we pursue our, you know, our earthly kingdoms with everything that we have and all of these decisions that we make, Jesus calls us to do that with his mission. 
Again, his story doesn't end there, and neither does ours. Matthew then gets converted into the community of Jesus. It says that he held a great party, and he reclined at the table with sinners and tax collectors and Jesus. He threw a big party, and he sits there with Jesus, which I think we're all content in. I mean, I think that's the most popular play right now, if you're following Jesus. The easiest play for you, I just want to let you know, and you can opt out anytime you want, would be to just download some podcasts and sit by yourself, become podcast Paul, and you could listen to them all and not have to do with any of us, right? I think that's some of the picture that we're like, I just want to be like that lady at the well who just sits and talks to Jesus one time, right? The reality of everyone who follows Jesus is that they're welcomed into a group of painfully obvious sinners. That's the the hard, challenging reality. And Matthew is no different. He's welcomed into this community that Jesus is creating. And often through the Gospels, it's the, the main image of his community is a table where he's eating and feasting. But Jesus' community offers way more than just baseline nutrition. He's offering essential nourishment. And I think sometimes we might think the community is just this required evil of like somehow that's the only way to get fed is if I go to the Christian community thing. That's the only, so I have to do it because that's the only way to be fed. But what Jesus shows over and over again is that this is not about just getting your basic needs met. It's about a thriving uh, nourishment of your soul. While stories uh, get highlighted often about Jesus' ability to give people new purpose, like I just did, or forgiveness, or inclusion, uh, kid just tried to escape by the inside. Uh, poor kid. There's also lots of stories of you know, intense restoration of people, of men and women. But the table of Jesus is really confrontational because it invites us into a world of lasting belonging. And belonging is something I've struggled with my whole life. I can talk about why. I've talked about why sometimes. But I desperately want to be known, like truly known. I really want relational intimacy. But I'm really scared of it. I'm scared of it because, you know, I want to be accepted. I don't want people to think that, I, that I'm bad or that I'm wrong or that I don't fit in. So I spent most of my life trying to fit in in any scenario that I find myself. This past week, we hosted this couple who were like us, third culture people. And it was, it was astonishing to watch people just try to figure out what would make me happy, you know, by the way that they, like, what's normative here? And that's how I like live most of my life. So if I'm invited to a dinner party, this is me just being super transparent. Is if you invite me, I'll come, but I'm going to calculate as soon as you invite me and I say yes, I'm going to try to calculate how long do I have to be there and how long do I have to show and what are going to be the rules of engagement in that party and how can I portray myself in such a way that they will like me and say that I'm worthy to be at that table. 
That's kind of, maybe that's just messed up me and too transparent. But it's what I've struggled with my whole life. And I don't think I'm the only one. I want to be included. I don't want to be, you know, I have FOMO like everybody else. I've had really good friends turn into enemies. I'm sure you have too. I've had loved ones become tyrants over my own life. And I'm sure you have too. And this is really what happens initially in that garden that we talk about all the time. In the beginning, God sets a beautiful table for Adam and Eve, a beautiful table of belonging, the the food, the, the beauty. Adam can't even enjoy it until he's brought into a full community. Really great telling situation there, right? Like he's not satisfied with God alone, which I know is That's a whole theological thing we could get in some other time. But he's desperately needs somebody else to fully enjoy God and fully enjoy the garden. But what Adam and Eve both do is they say, I would rather pursue this meal over here, this food over there. They have a dinner date together, Adam and Eve. But instead of having it with God who loves and graciously gives, they have it at the sort of inbreaking of shame and agony that's about to flood over their whole lives. They're like people, I've seen it all the time, especially in the summer when people are here on vacation and they're standing on the ocean, they're like Instagramming their own photos and they don't know that a wave is about to crash down on them and their whole, they better get that photo in fast. I hope it's like direct to Instagram shot. But What happens is they're there and they don't even know it and a wave crashes completely over them. And that's what happens in the garden as they take and they eat and they say, maybe we can have this without God's presence in it. Maybe we can have beautiful community together without him. And we can decide who gets to eat this. We get to decide who's good, who's bad, who's evil and and right. The grief of the soul is not only for some personal transformation with God. Our longing is not just for God. It's for a reunification with one another. And this is what we mean when we say belong. That you and I, that all of us together would have a reunification and a reconciliation with one another that is not based on all of the other you know, requirements for community that we find. I think we, we long for the Norman Rockwell feast painting. It's really great. Did you see it? Oh, it's a little, I've made it too small, my bad. But I'll describe it. You know, it's like this great crowd of people, right? They're all, look at how happy they are. One of the things I love is this guy in the bottom corner. Y'all see it? There's this town in Oregon where the whole town has his paintings painted all over the wall. It's a little creepy of a silver, but silver Oregon. If you ever go, you could get this painting. Anyway, this guy in the bottom corner. I mean, everyone's happy. I mean, look at that turkey. There's so much food. There's just a few tiny, I guess that's charred over there, but everything else looks really good. And this guy in the corner is looking at it. And if you talk to Rockwell about it, he'll say, this was all on purpose so that you would feel like there was a place set for you. And that, there, that you are part of this moment. 
that there's a glass and a fork and a plate that's out there for you. In this place where there's laughter, where everyone is welcome, where there's food and companionship, that there's a table set before us. This is what we long for. I think it's telling, too, that one of the most preferred psalms, David writes that God walked with him through the valley of the shadow of death. Y'all know that part? And then he says, and then he set a table before me, a table like this one that we just looked at, a table just set for me with my enemies. That's what's happening at Levi's house. Jesus has a party with sinners where each one belongs, where God has walked them through the valley of the shadow of death and sin and evil, and they sit down together as people, as sinners, with fellow people who, are, who used to be their enemies. Simon the fisherman shares a drink at Levi's house who, who just probably the day before took his money from him. A man who was in, ignored in caves on the outskirts of town is suddenly giving a hug to John the fisherman who he's seen pass by him many a times. Every individual who encounters the power of Jesus finds themselves feasting with fellow cinders underneath God's grace in a freedom that cannot be matched. The gospel doesn't settle for a repair of a single human soul. He's set on the resurrection of the human experience. In Jesus' community, his work manifests itself not merely in the healing between humanity and God, but in a reunion of humanity to one another. The table's not just where we meet God, it's where we meet each other. Jesus welcomes sinners to one another. I think often we just imagine that Jesus is at one of those awful parties that I've thrown myself. We did this a few years ago for 4th of July. We threw a party where we invited a whole bunch of people who only knew us. So nobody knew each other. And at that party, all it was is everyone taking turns hanging out with us. Have you been to that kind of party? I went to a going away party a few months ago that was exact. It was like, oh my gosh, we went to one. And you know, I've already shared how I feel about parties. It was like, oh great, the only people that I know are the people that are going away. Why are we here? Anyway, that's not what it's like in Jesus's kingdom. We're not just welcomed into a community where we all talk to God, but where God is like this heavenly matchmaker. And in his divine graciousness, he's brought us each to one another to feast and to belong. And this is the conversion to his community. And like I've said before, I think it's the hardest one for us to step into. How do you get into normal community in the world? Uh, you say the right things, right? Is that how you get in? Uh, you vote the right way. I think one of the main reasons we're so like polarized is because you get such a great sense of belonging by agreeing with other people on who to dislike. And that's how you get in. You share the right posts, you wear the right clothes, you serve the right food. That's how you get in and you belong. Because if you don't, you're out. 
and community and dinner reservations are reserved for those people who are already right. Like, wow, like how true is that, right? Of this moment, I think it's pretty true. Uh, How many of you fear going home to Thanksgiving because you're not sure if you'll believe the right things or if they'll believe the right things? To get a seat in our communities, you have to pay a price. You have to perform with good prudence, right? You have to become like those people that you're trying to belong to. And Jesus' system surprises us all. It's super surprising. He judges the worthiness of a person to sit with him at the table and enjoy the relationship that he has through the lens of neediness. Through the lens of neediness. Who gets in? It says here, Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. I've I've not come to call the people who are righteous, who have everything together, but to call sinners to repentance. His system is not based on uh, any of those things, about being good enough, working hard enough, looking right, being of the right culture. Jesus' system is just purely based on need. And I want to be honest with us, we're not fooling each other. We're not fooling anyone. Everyone in this room is just super needy. I can testify because I know my own soul. I'm super needy. I told Mirella this morning when I was leaving, I was like, I'm just super needy. And also, I don't even know you all that well. So I know that this is a big leap, but it's not some special discernment skill. I just know people, and I'm your pastor, and I know some of you. We are needy human beings, super needy. Wendell Berry, who I love, writes this. Uh, he says, what's astonishing about the Gospels is not the depth of sinner Jesus meets. And he kind of talks throughout this essay that he writes about how it's not that super shocking that he discovers sinners that are really bad. That's not what's shocking. He says, what's astonishing is the transparent neediness of all who come to him. What sticks out to Wendell Berry as he reads the Gospels is the utter weakness that people display coming to Jesus. If you need him, you are welcome in the community of saints. If you need him, you will be Uh, surrounded by a whole group of people who are depressed, who are desperate, who would be loners, but are somehow with us. And this is what he says. He says, this is your now new family where I sit at the head like like the mom and the dad who are about to cut that turkey. Welcome to this table. But here's the warning. If you're sitting at the table or you're sitting in that community and you look to your right and you look to your left and you find yourself thinking, I'm too good for this crowd. Or you find yourself thinking, it's a really good thing that I'm here to provide some stability for these people. Then you aren't ready for the company of Jesus. The seats are reserved. At every seat at his table, there is a little reservation, little cool placard. What are those called, Daniel? Cards. Name cards. 
place cards. At every seat, there's a little place card that's really cute. You get them from Michael's or something like that. And at each one of them, what it says on it is a person in need. And if you sit down and that is something you cannot swallow, you're like the Pharisees at this dinner party who are present but not part of it. It's the agony of this story. There are people who are in the party with Jesus who are observing the kingdom of God happening around them, and yet they do not find themselves in it. But if you sit down and you say, I'm not worthy to be here except for the price paid by Jesus. You say, I'm not capable of the performance needed except for the performance that Jesus has already done. If you say, I don't belong except for the radical inclusion that Jesus has brought on me. If you come into community resting and relying on his presence, you will find community. And that is the power of the gospel. And that is the power of the conversion into his people. And the great news about this story is, even if you are a Pharisee, and even if right now you're saying, I'm too good for these people, I'm glad I provide some stability for them. Jesus continually invites them to the party, and you can belong here too. So that is the cost. Now you know how much the field with the treasure in it costs. It costs you your hopes. You're going to have to surrender hoping in all this other stuff and only hope in Jesus. It's going to cost you your personal kingdom. You're going to have to let go of it or your boss's kingdom or your family's kingdom. You're going to have to let go of it. It will cost you that and it will cost you your autonomy. Like I said, I go to parties. It costs me that. But more seriously, this is the cross. Jesus surrenders his future. That's what he's doing in the garden when he's agonizingly praying to the Father. He's saying, do I really have to surrender this present future? That's the cross. The cross is the one where Jesus is mocked by the empires of the world. And it's also where he hung on it alone. Jesus took all of those other hopes, all of the loneliness, all of the other kingdoms, and he squashed it on the cross so that you can live abundant life. And so Miroslav Volf, who's this Croatian writer, he's really amazing. He used to teach at USC, but he wrote this uh, in his book, Exclusion and Embrace. It's really good. Won awards. It's really heady. So, but he said this. He said, in the final analysis, the only available options are either to reject the cross and with it the core of the Christian faith or to take up one's cross, follow the crucified Christ and be scandaled ever anew by the challenge. This is our task for the next eight weeks, to be scandalized anew by Jesus as we take up our cross and we follow him. And as we do that, I want us to have eyes to see Jesus is calling us into deeper and deeper joy. Because what's described for Levi turned Matthew is nothing less than joy. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for 
the goodness of your life. I thank you for the goodness of the life that you've called us into. I pray for us to be a people that surrender everything and that find a bunch of joy and life in this community, in your mission, in the world. And I know that we are not the things that we've talked about. So Jesus, make us by the power of your spirit and the people who love to follow you, who consider the cost, who give it away, and who find and taste uh, satisfaction. I want us to be satisfied. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.